everybody. Welcome to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Crohn's warrior and IJ nephropathy warrior, and I'm dedicated to sharing the stories of those with IBD. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now let's get to it. Well, hi, everyone. My guest today is Megan Starshack, an ulcerative colitis warrior, adventurer, runner, cyclist, patient advocate, and co-founder of the Great Bowel Movement. She's here today to share her journey with IBD, her advocacy, and how she balances life with chronic illness. Thank you so much for joining me today, Megan, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be a part of this. I am excited to have you on, and it's, it's my pleasure to have you here. So let's go ahead. Let's jump in. And can you start us off by sharing your IBD story? Talk about how and when you were diagnosed. I will try and keep it to the short version because as we all know, this story can be a, a very long story. And of course, it's never ending because it's a chronic disease. Um, but I think that what's interesting about my story is that it's really centered around running and being active so much, in fact, that I was out on a run the first time I ever experienced a symptom or, or a symptom that I recognized Um so I was 18 and I was, no, I was 17. I was about to turn 18. I was in Florida with my best friend for spring break and we went out for a run and I was just hit with the, the urgency that now, now we're all familiar with. But at the time, of course, I was like, whoa, what, what is happening in my bowels? Um, found a bathroom, thankfully, um, thought I was fine. And then over the course of a half hour run, I had to go three times with like that same level of urgency. Um, fast forward, it was senior year, we graduated, it was summer, um, you know, I was just hanging out with my friends, soaking up that last little bit before we all left for college. And my mom noticed that I was complaining of a lot of abdominal pain, taking a lot of naps, spending a lot of time in my room and and had me get checked out and a couple blood tests and a colonoscopy later, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. So I think that was in June um, when I was eight, 18. So that summer be between high school and college. Did you have any idea what IBD was when you were first diagnosed with this? I had heard of Crohn's disease because I knew a couple of people that had it. But again, being young and having it be a little bit of a taboo subject and, and not really knowing how to explain it maybe to peers. I knew it was like, it was described to me as a stomach disease, like a stomach thing, which is not, not quite the same, even though it can affect your, you know, as part of your digest digestive tract. But when you think of like, oh, it's a stomach ache, that's so different than I have an inflammation in my colon I mean, it's causing all these these serious problems for me. Um, so I, I had heard of it by name, but I, I knew almost nothing about it, like nothing. And I didn't know anybody that was very open about talking about it. So I didn't really at that time have anyone that I could go to and be like, oh, I knew that you had this. Like, can you tell me what you wish you would have known? But then turning around, I think that has really influenced me to to look back and and realize like that would have been invaluable to me in that moment. And how can I make that possible for other people? Did you have any idea of what to expect at that point? And then oh gosh, no. Talk <laughs> so no. talk 
Talk to me a little bit about that, about not knowing what to expect, and then I assume treatment started? Yeah. It, it, is, it is nearly impossible to know what a chronic disease is going to bring you in life and how deeply it will affect every single part of your life. Coming from a relatively healthy childhood where I had like the occasional strep throat and the, you know, the average cold, maybe the flu once in a while, there's no concept of this is a thing that now you have that you like, you're never going to get over it. Like it's, it's here to stay. Um, so it really changes your whole paradigm of how you view illness. Um, and I think that is such a hard thing for an 18 year old or anybody really to wrap their head around is, is like, this isn't something that you can take a round of antibiotics and like be done with. It is ongoing. It is impactful. It is deep. It is full of side effects and just, just all of the things that, that pop up, um, not just physically, but like emotionally, uh, socially, athletically, it's, it just took over every single, every single layer of my life. And that I think was the thing that I was really sidelined by is, okay, this isn't just like, this isn't just a checklist of physical things. This is an entire shift in who I am, how I have to manage my, my life, how I have to manage my body and, and on top of like school and everything else. What was that process like of finally realizing that? Did it happen over the course of the next couple years to come of finally realizing changes had to be made, that this was something that was going to impact so many different things? Yeah, it was definitely a, I think it was a, a years long just sort of evolution. And then one day I think I recognized it. So I don't think that anything changed in, in that moment, in a single moment. But I think that I suddenly was at the point where I was like, oh, this is all a really big deal. So for me being in college, I had to kind of figure out diet on my own a little bit, um, trying to figure out what was least painful for me to eat and still get in some calories and nutrients. I gave up running, which was really hard, and I didn't realize it. Um, it, it felt like it tore tore a part of my identity with it, and it was also very hard to explain to people because if you break your leg and you say, I can't run, people are like, obviously. If you say, I can't run, but I can put one foot in front of the other and I can physically move forward, but I have to go to the bathroom every other block. I'm going to need to find a bathroom, which makes, it doesn't even make sense to me. Um, or I am fatigued beyond explanation. And, and I just, I can't make my body move, move in this way anymore. Um, so it was hard to give up something that I loved be, because I loved it for obvious reasons, but it was also I realized such a big part of who I was that I it left a hole of, okay, well, I'm not Megan the runner. I'm not hanging out with my running friends. I'm not going to track practice. I'm not having conversations about like, what's the newest shoe coming out or, you know, whatever the thing may be. Um, so it, 
it left a a weird and unexpected hole um, when I made the decision to really to really give that up and really let my body have a rest from that. What kind of treatments were you on at that time? I assume it wasn't enough because it sounds like you weren't getting enough relief to really enjoy your life the way you wanted. It was not enough. So when I was initially diagnosed, they started me on Asacol, so on just an anti-inflammatory, and that was 12 pills a day, which is a lot. That was my first one. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of people. It was a lot of people's first one, especially back in the day. And then it was, it like kind of worked, but not really. Um, and then throughout, I, I was also on prednisone, which is really challenging as, as probably every single one of um, your audience knows. It, it was really challenging. It was really challenging in college. Excuse me. It was especially challenging in college where I'm already not sleeping well. I'm already like not, I don't have access to like really great healthy foods. It's, it messes with your, your mind and your focus and your mood. And that just kind of exacerbates everything else. So it was um, not great. And then in college, they also tried to prescribe me enemas, which just like didn't, that just doesn't work if you live in a dorm room with a roommate, like, no, it's a lot of stuff I'm willing to do for health, but that was that was like not one of them. I had the same enemas and I cannot imagine doing that in a dorm college setting. Yeah, I did not. Uh, I did later on when I had a, my own apartment, but I was like, no, this is this is not the this is not the play. Um, but that was also kind of all that was available at that time. And I didn't really have a doctor that was keeping up with the latest treatments out there. Um, and I also, again, being young, being new to having this disease, I didn't really realize that the thing they gave you might not be the thing that works. Because again, when you're a kid and you get strep throat and you get amoxicillin or whatever they, they give you, like, that's it. That's the thing. That's like the one thing. And so to get a treatment and not have this explanation of like, let us know if it's working. If it's not working, we'll we'll try something else. We'll pivot. Would again, that would have been really helpful back then um, in just doing what I can to understand how to manage this all. How long were your doctor appointments? Did they give you the medications, and then was it? Let's follow up in six months. You know what? I don't really remember. I do remember that I like I would pop in because I wasn't feeling well. And so I would just show up and be like, you need to see me now um, a couple of times. Or I went to the ER uh, because I just wasn't really able to eat. And I was completely fatigued and dehydrated and malnourished. And so I sometimes would go in and get just IV fluids and and stuff, maybe some pain management. Um, but it was felt really lost. Felt like I didn't, I just, I didn't know what my options were. And it took me a while to figure out that I had to really be more proactive and figure out what should I be looking for? What should I be asking for? What should I be talking to my doctor about? Because like, this is, again, this is not going away. And being a young, tough teenager, I thought I just could deal with it. And I'm looking back, I'm like, well, that, that was stupid. I we don't need we don't need to deal with this when there's when there's tools out there that can help us. So looking back at that time in your life and reflecting on when you were 
going through this as a college student with not a whole lot of information about treatments and what the disease is, what advice would you give to other young adults who are in their teens, late teens, those college years that are so formative as human beings? It's a stressful time without having a chronic illness. What kind of advice would you give to people going through an IBD diagnosis in those early years? Advice for people going through that now would be just to keep yourself informed. And it's okay if you don't understand the deep science of what all the treatments are, what they do, but just know that there are options out there. There's there's so many more options now than I had when I was that age, which is really amazing for for people to have have just some more things on the table. Um, it's it's kind of frustrating that you do have to take charge, but we're still in a place where n- nobody is really going to do this for you. But it's also kind of like a good growing up action to start to understand. I need to know what's going on in my body. I need to know what's going on with my treatment. I need to m- manage this uh, relationship with my doctor. And I think especially for kids that maybe haven't as as peds as pediatrics, they maybe haven't had to do any of that or think about any of that, but you're, it's okay. You're going to be fine. There's a lot of information and tools out there. And it, the more that you can do that, the easier it's going to be in the long run. So tell me about the rest of your journey. You were in college. The medications weren't really helping. What finally got you to a place of new medications, treatments that maybe actually started to help and turn your turn your life around to start enjoying activities again that you had missed? Early on, I had made a promise to myself that I was never going to use my IBD as an excuse to get out of out of something. I was going to save it for when I really, it really was affecting me. And for the most part, for the most part, I maintained that for myself. So it was a lot of maybe going going to work, like not calling in sick for work when I could go to work, um, maybe having to make you know a little bit other arrangements or you know bring clean bring a clean pair of underwear on hand. But I just like didn't want to waste those times where I really needed someone to make an exception for me. And I had one of those days where I'm like, this is a day that I ca- I cannot handle this. I should not be here. Um, I'm just. I can't keep anything in my body. I'm not eating. I'm in so much pain and so much fatigue. And also I'm not getting good care. I'm not having good conversations with my doctor. And and this was at the point where I had started to research and I had started to understand that there were different treatments out there that worked differently. So different mechanisms of action. And right before this point, my previous doctor had told me that those were not things that he was going to consider for me. And um, if I went to a different gastroenterologist, they would tell me the same thing and that what I was on, which again was uh, anti-inflammatories and and steroids, he said that this is what you're on, this is what your body responds to. And I was finally like, "This, this isn't good enough. Like there has to be something better out there. And if there's not, like at least we tried. So I had this day at work where I was getting ready to go home early. It was it was just one of those days where it was it was too much. It was the right decision and I ended up 
calling into the local medical college in our communities, like the big hospital system with the, the teaching hospital. And I said, I would like to switch to your GI department. I am really like at this rock bottom um, and I just need something different. And they actually got me in, I think that day or the next day, like they got me in really quickly after that. And I remember it was right before 4th of July weekend and I was the last appointment before the doctor was flying home for the holiday to be with his family. I'm in a different state and I go in and I tell him my whole medical history, my symptoms, the, the treatments that I had tried, like the doctor that I had previously seen. And he looked at me and he said, you are 24 at the time. So six years after diagnosis, he said, you are 24 and you deserve a chance to live your life. And I am pretty sure I started crying mostly because no one had ever given me that hope that they were going to stick with me and try stuff, but also that somebody had looked at me as a human with a quality of life and goals and passions and ambitions and not just, here's a clinical list of symptoms. So that was um, the doctor that I, of course, switched to, and I'm still seeing, the, the, the doctors have changed, but the department is still where I go. Um, and we tried a couple of different therapies and ended up with Remicade, which was the last approved option at that point in time. Of course, there's a lot more options now, but it was it was Remicade. And if Remicade doesn't work, it was it was surgery. And Remicade worked almost immediately. I wouldn't say that it was perfect almost immediately, but I could feel the difference. And I remember waking up like three days later and waking up with a feeling of being refreshed that I had not experienced in over half a decade and being like, yes, we are on the right track and we are going to get there. That's incredible. Do you just feel like your world opened back up again? It was, it was literally like when people say, how do I bottle up this feeling? I was like, this is the feeling. Like, this is what I wish every single person on this earth could experience is having life ripped out from under them and then getting it back. Because when you get it back, you have such an appreciation and like such a motivation to not waste a single drop of it. That's incredible. So I'm guessing that put you into remission. And are you still in remission? How did your journey go from there? Did Is that what's working? I am still in remission with Remicade. So really, um, really amazing. Real, I have a lot. To, I have so much to be grateful for. Um, just being stable and to the point where now I can really focus on and I have been able to focus on other things in my life. So running actually morphed into cycling, um, which I really, I really love being on a bike, um, but also going to yoga class or being able to focus on growing my career, which is really important to me. It's actually in the healthcare space, part, partly because of my journey. Um, sometimes it's just like going out to dinner and drinking a Manhattan and eating a salad and like not feeling pain. I'm so happy that it worked and that it continued to work and that you're in remission, living life and bringing back the things that, that bring you joy. 
So let's talk about food for a minute. Earlier, you started to mention that in college, you were just trying to, you were struggling with trying to find foods that didn't hurt, that didn't cause pain. So what was that journey like to figure out trigger foods? Did did the doctor tell you that you needed to change your diet or was it just an intuitive thing of things are hurting, I need to change? And then how did that shift as you were getting better? It was pretty intuitive, which I think is true for a lot of people. We, like this is a immune, immune system disease, but it's also a digestive disease. So I think one of the first things as a new patient that you think of is if my digestive system is hurting, then I am eating something wrong and that I should just not eat. And of course, it's not even close to that simple of just eat this, not that, like avoid, avoid something. Um, but you're also like, you're in pain, like eating is a painful experience, but you have to do it because going hungry is also a painful experience. So at the time, I, I really just was on as bland of a diet as I could manage. So it was like white bread and rice. And um, I remember eating like Eggo waffles with peanut butter just to mix it up. I tried to go dairy-free for a while. Um, I don't remember even if that helped or not. Uh, but I really was just like bland, bland, bland. I got I got a special permission from the college cafeteria that they would make me special food so that could be easier to digest. And they were actually just lovely people about it. I should have known to ask sooner. But again, I didn't, I didn't know that is a thing that I could have done. Um, but anyone who's ever eaten in a college cafeteria probably knows the food is not that great. So I'd be walking through with like this beautiful plate of a, of like a grilled chicken breast, um, and some rice and maybe like some, some steamed carrots or something. And people would be like, Oh, what line did you get that from? And I'm like, sorry, I have an incurable disease. That's why I get this. Um, so it, it was really just that low residue bland diet for as long as I really could. And when I started Remicade and got into remission, then it was like everything was was fine. Back then, we didn't know nearly as much about nutrition as we do now. So it's been a weird shift to, to originally like having conversations with people when they're like, why don't you just eat this? Or why don't you just eat that? Which we've all had those. And, and back in the day, it was like, when I'm sick, everything hurts. When I'm fine, everything is fine. Of course, it's not, again, it's not that simple. So now for me, it's been a little bit of a shift of how can I continue to eat as healthy as possible um, while keeping these autoimmune factors in mind, um, you know, getting enough vegetables, getting enough protein, not just eating white bread. So do you find that you still have any trigger foods, even though you've been in remission for such a long time now and doing well on the Remicade? Is there anything you still tend to stay away from? You know, it's mostly like corn and beans, which I think affect normal people too. But like if I eat a bunch of corn, not even a bunch of corn, if I eat corn, I usually see it in the toilet. Same sometimes with beans. Um, but I also don't like beans that much, so I'm fine with that. Um, but it's it's some of that, like those those like glaring culprits that I try to stay away from. But I've been really lucky; like salads been fine. Sometimes you just have to make sure, like 
you chew it well, but even if it comes out for me now in remission, it's not like, it's not causing a health complication. It's just not digesting. So overall it's been, I've been, I've been really lucky on that aspect. I love to hear when the world of food opens up for people, because I know in my own experience, I spent so long just limiting and restricting and it felt like I couldn't eat anything. And then when I finally got to a place where everything was on the menu again, it's just a great, a great feeling. The best feeling. I think for talking with other patients, because I remember the first time that I ate a salad and it didn't hurt and it was fine and it was so delicious. And you can tell other patients like that moment and they totally get it. And if you tell other people like, oh, I had a salad, they're like, so I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like I was able to eat salad and they're like, um, okay. And then you tell another patient, like I knew I was in remission when I can eat salad. If people are like, you are so lucky you can eat salad. Salad was my food. It was the first thing that I really identified, like lettuce has to go. This is not good. And then when I finally, and it took a long time, like years and years and years before I was able to eat salad. But when I did, it was like, holy cow, is this a one-time thing? <laughs> Can I eat salad again forever? And it's wonderful. <laughs> yes. So let's shift gears. I want to talk about your advocacy and how this whole journey has shaped a lot of what you're doing now. So as you went through this journey, as you continue to go through this journey, what compelled you to open up and start sharing your story and really becoming an IBD advocate? What I think is interesting for me, it's it was more of when I started to get to a good place mentally and with acceptance that I wanted to, like I said, share that feeling, shout from the rooftops. This is a this is a thing that I'm living with. But I want to tell you that it's made me stronger and it's made me really appreciate all of these things. Um, and that's like that's such a beautiful thing. I know that everyone is not there yet and and there's a lot of struggle that comes along with that. Um, and part of that came out of volunteering at the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation Camp Oasis, which is such a fun, great program. Um, so I had actually still volunteer there. Now I run the leadership program for the oldest kids, which I love doing. Do you want to talk a little bit about what Camp Oasis is for people who may not be sure. familiar with it? Yeah. Camp Oasis is run by the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and they have uh, a bunch of locations all over the country. So every kid in the country has a location that they can go to. And it is, I guess the quickest way to describe it is every kid has IBD. Like they have to have their doctor sign off. Like, yes, this person is a patient. And then you get to camp and camp is so normal. Camp is swimming and climbing the rock tower and making friendship bracelets and playing sports and, um, you know, singing camp songs. It is, it is not IBD school. It is not some kind of programming. It is just kids being kids. And what I think is really cool is that these kids, like IBD doesn't discriminate. It affects so many people. So it doesn't matter who you are in your school. If you are the most popular kid that's friends with everyone, or you are the quiet kid that keeps to themselves, you are the sick kid. And you always kind of have that to carry around with you. And so you come to camp and everyone's the sick kid. So everybody is the normal kid. And you see, like you see it in their faces 
over the course of a week. You see it when they come back the next year and get to hug their friends again. Um, you see it on the last night with the oldest kids when it's their very last night as a camper when there's teenage boys crying uncontrollably because of what camp brought them in their in their journey and support that they would have not otherwise had. And you've been volunteering there for how long now? I tell you, you're going to know how old I am. Um, <laughs> you don't think have I've, to tell. No. <laughs> I think that I've been there for 16 years in some regards. So like the kids that I have now, like they were being born when I first started volunteering. Um, but I love seeing this sort of cycle of kids that I knew when they were younger and then they came up through the leadership program and then they come back and they be counselors. And then you see these counselors taking like what they grew into and what they learned and giving that back to the younger kids that are coming in for the first time and like seeing that cycle a couple of times over and just having like even a little part of that is is incredibly powerful I love it's also like it's also like it's just fun it's also fun now if I'm not mistaken the idea for the great valve movement was actually born at camp oasis yeah, it was uh, myself and my co-founder, Andrea, and we had recognized the power of these very organic conversations that happened at camp. Um, like I said, camp was not, it's not a program, it's not structured around IBD, but because these kids all have it, they talk about it. They talk about colonoscopies and they talk about what medications they're on and the pills they take and the scars they might have from surgery. And, and it, I think it's the most valuable type of conversation because they, they need it and they feel safe having it and they have the, their peers that they can talk to in that environment. And we wanted to really create a way for those conversations to happen more and more and out in the world. And so the first thing we, we, uh, came up with was t-shirts that say, ask me about my Crohn's disease and ask me about my ulcerative colitis. And it's very simple, like start that conversation. Um, and we quickly realized that not everybody was ready to have that written across their t-shirt. And so we started to think about, okay, how do we help people feel more comfortable with this? How do we help them know how to have those really important conversations? So we started um, doing like blog posts and social media content um, surrounding just just that whole journey of you're, you don't have to be embarrassed. You did nothing wrong to get this. It's okay to talk about it. This is a safe space if you don't feel like you have a safe space out in your own world. And then we did like kind of like Mad Lib style of like, here's how you, f- you craft your own story. Here's, here's some ways to describe IBD that again, is not like it's a stomach disease because it's because it's not really. Um, so I think we learned from our own experiences and what we saw from the kids at camp and really wanted to just kind of create that movement, like truly a movement of of people that were more comfortable, more open, more proactive um, and also just connecting, connecting other people. And when did you finally take those initial ideas, the initial movement and turn that into an actual organization? It was back in like 2010. It's a long time ago now. Wow, we are so old. Um, <laughs> so we did that 
back when it was only Facebook and everyone was on Facebook. I don't even think Instagram was launched yet. Um, so in a way, it was kind of nice because everyone was just on one platform. There were no other options. Um, and we had some really great conversations that emerged out of that. And and we had people that maybe had commented and then they, they came in and they contributed to our blog. Um, so just really, really important things to say. So I love that we've been able to help other people find their voice and elevate those voices and really just shift shift the general narrative less of something taboo and less of something stigmatized to something that is non-clinical and very conversational and like we're sitting here today we can talk about um, bloody diarrhea we can talk about running and yoga and salad and it's just kind of a world where that can ebb and flow in and out of conversation, I think, is a world where we can all benefit from the awareness and the the decreased stigma of it all. What are the different ways that people can get involved with the Great Bell Movement now? Right now, um, we would love if if anyone is interested in contributing to our blog. We've been in a little bit, little bit of a reset mode, but we've got some big ideas right around the corner. Um, look out for some new content or new resources coming out. But right now, it's it's keeping that conversation going. So what I would honestly really like to see is more people being more open and and tell us what that meant to you. Tell us about how you told your teacher for the first time. How did it go? Were, were you received more positively than you expected? Um, what would you tell other people who are struggling in those same situations? I think everybody is goes through this this transition period where you're diagnosed and you you probably be like pretty quiet about it, or you just don't know how to communicate it. And then you get to this this transition point where you're like, it's going to help me. It's going to help others to be part of this conversation and to initiate these conversations. Like that's that's the type of person that we really look to to support, to kind of nudge them to the other side. And on the other side, you've got like this incredible sense of empowerment and this incredible sense of, I can take something very painful and challenging and use it for good um, and use it to, not to like find meaning, but like just to not waste it. You have, you have it whether or not you do something good with it. So might as well use it for, for the better. And are you guys still on Facebook or what different platforms can they go to to be a part of the Great Bowel Movement? Uh, the website is probably the best um, place. It is thegreatbowelmovement.org. Um, but like I said, we've got some things brewing behind the scenes. Um, we have uh, some more resources to help us really get things reinvigorated. And we're really excited about just taking what our, our origin story, like what we started with, and... Um, bringing it to life in just the world that we live in today. So where does your journey take you next, your advocacy, your IBD journey? You mentioned earlier that it's shaping your career path at this point. Is that something you want to share what's happening next? Sure. In my career, I work at a marketing agency and we focus in life sciences and biotech. So it's really interesting to dive more into the science side of things and understand what does the industry as a whole look at? What's happening in immunology and research and drug development, um, drug delivery, things like that. And I think that 
the reason that it's important for me to be able to work in an area like this is in marketing, it's it's about connecting ideas with the people that, that can do something with them. So in, in research, there are so many incredibly smart people um, at our clients and that our clients work with that aren't marketers, are not storytellers. And if they, you know, much like disease, if, if their idea stays detached from the world, from, from their audiences, it's not going to make a difference. So my part in that is helping people get their messages out there in a way that matters. Um, and then on the flip side, I've really behind the scenes found a lot of purpose in supporting other patient advocates. So um, whether it's like branding or brand strategy or web strategy, things like that, there's just, there's so many people, there's, there's so many diseases out there. And I have, again, I've been in remission for a really long time and I'm really grateful for that. And I don't always have a lot to talk about from a disease advocacy standpoint. Um, so being able to take my skills and things that I've learned in my professional life and just give it back to others whose stories are so important, who you know, a lot of people don't have the budget to, to bring in a professional. So I really love being able to just give people a little boost when I can. That's wonderful. What an incredible position to be in and way to use your skills to help advocacy spread even farther. I love it. So what is the, as we get ready to wrap up, what is the final message or biggest piece of advice that you would like to share with the listeners? I have two pieces of advice. And the first one is that if you haven't found your community, find your community, find your people. It is outside of actual medical treatment. I think it's the best thing you can do for yourself. And I don't think people realize quite the importance of it until they get to the other side. And I think it's, it sounds like a nice thing, but it's different than I'm into running. I would like to meet other runners. Like, sure, that's great. I am living with a disease that is stigmatized, that nobody understands, that affects me in ways that I cannot explain. To connect with somebody else who inherently understands that, that is just there with you and you don't have to try and figure out a way to communicate like the gravity of what you deal with, but just to have someone be like, oh yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. And sit there in, in silence or or not is is everything. And I would also say that it's a really, really tough, complex disease. And you can, you can gain some good because of what you have gone through in your challenges. And I think a lot of times that strength and that wisdom only comes about because of the struggles. Um, and I do not like the false positivity, the toxic positivity that comes out. But I think there is a point where you can look back and, and say, I... I learned who I am as at the core of my being as a strong person because I've endured this. I, 
I learned how valuable my friends are and my support system. Um, and I'm intentional about spending time with the people that, that bring me something and then I can bring something to as well. I think I'll, like things like that are things that some people in their entire lives never figure out. And we have unfortunately been dealt the cards that we've dealt with, but in some ways we have some really good cards in that hand. Those are great messages. Thank you. So if people want to keep up with you, keep up with your IBD journey or more about the Great Bowel Movement, where are all the places that they can find you online? The Great Bowel Movement is at thegreatbowelmovement.org or it is The Great BM on socials. Uh, if they want to keep up with me, I am It's Me Megaroo on Instagram, but I will warn you, you're pretty much going to see dog pictures, videos. Um, so if that's what you're into, uh, that is what you're, <laughs> is what you're going to get. Um, I love, I love messages too. So if I can, if I can help you in any way, if you have a quick question, whether it's about disease or about, you know, patient advocacy or, or branding, um, if I, if I have capacity, I love really hopping on and just having a little chat with people and, and, you know, doing what I can to help um, all those really important stories get out there. I'll put all those links in the show notes so that people can find you. And like you say, if they need to reach out to you, then, then they can. So as we close, is there anything that I did not ask you that you wanted to share? A big, a big takeaway is like, it is such a complex disease and it's so different for everyone. So it's a hard balance between understanding treatments and understanding nutrition and exercise, but also like realizing you have to find what works specifically for you. And it might take a little bit of trial and error and working with your doctor to figure out like what's going to be best and also coming to terms with like what you wanted maybe isn't what the reality is. Like I gave up running, but I found cycling. I found an entire other sport that I love that I have met some really amazing friends through. Um, so it's okay to, it's okay to pivot. It's okay. If your best laid plans do not come to life, you're, you're going to be okay. That's a perfect takeaway. So thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today and for helping to raise IBD awareness and for all of the work that you do. It has been a great conversation and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. This is really great. I appreciate this. Thank you for listening. If you love these interviews and want to support the podcast, visit my website at Crohn'sFitnessFood.com where you can browse my featured products page to shop the companies I love and support. Make a donation using the Buy Me a Coffee link to send a little love. Or grab a copy of my book and IBD story, Crohn's Fitness Food and My Rocky Road to Health. If you have an IBD story that you want to share, send me an email at story at Crohn'sFitnessFood.com. And always remember, be strong, be grateful, and keep going. <laughs>